You're listening to Women's Cricket Chat with Hannah and Alex. This episode is brought to you by Black Rat Cricket. Remember, if you quote Women's Cricket Chat, you can get 15% off your team wear. Coming up on our sixth episode for International Women's Week, we've got Head of the 100 competition, Beth Barrett-Wild. Now, Beth talks all things the 100 and the fact that the 100 is going to make history by being the first competition to open with a women's match between the Oval Invincibles and the Manchester Originals. Beth also talks about her life growing up and that cricket has always been a part of her, but that opportunities to play cricket may not have always been visible. And despite women's cricket being on the up, she believes that there is more to be done to make women's cricket more recognisable. So the theme for International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to ask you, I guess the first question is, obviously, what does International Women's Day mean to you? So International Women's Day, I mean, I've been thinking about this uh, quite a lot recently. Um, I think we've been doing lots of planning as an organisation ahead of the big day next week and sort of, yeah, uh, deciding how we want to celebrate it. So I've kind of done a bit of thinking about what it really means to me and sort of the origins of it. And I did actually do a quick Google um, about sort of where it where it came from. And I think that returned the search that it was all about a celebration of the movement of women's rights. And I think that is still very much the case today. Um, I think what I love about it though and um, I was talking to my wife Eliza about this last night actually like I just love how the whole day like my social media feed is just full of like brilliant inspiring stories about women doing brilliant things Um, and I just absolutely love to see that and I think you know having that moment where across the whole world everybody's doing the same thing and is sharing that content there's something really powerful about that and I think that's that's great um I think on the flip side of it um I think you know it still serves a really key purpose alongside that that celebratory look and feel to it that it does help us to highlight that we've still got a long way to go so there's still actually a lot of a lot of challenges that still exist which is where I think um the the theme for this year around choose to challenge fits really nicely because I think you know we have come a long way and I think cricket in particular um in terms the journey that we're on with the women and girls game at the moment we've come a a very long way and a a lot of that progress has been made in a very short space of time over the last few years but we know we still have a long way to go so I think International Women's Day is one of those moments where um, it allows you to celebrate um, all the brilliant stuff that is happening but it also allows you to take a step back and be like right well where are the gaps what still have we got to do um, and really reflect on that and I think the other thing I was almost like thinking about it a little bit and from a personal perspective and, and given my role um, as head of the 100 women's competition at the ECB is and this is going to sound really cheesy but in a way like for me every day is a little bit like International Women's Day because I wake up every morning thinking about change and thinking about how I can make a difference um, and really kind of thinking about ways that we can make cricket more gender balanced and what are the challenges that we still need to meet and address so yeah I think there's lots of levels and layers to it um, and I think you know I'm very much looking forward to it next year uh, next year next next week but that's a good point as well actually that was a slip of the tongue and not intentional but the other point that I did just want to sort of just mention on the whole International Women's Day thing is and the, the bit that frustrates me about it is when you do sometimes see um, organisations and people feel like they have to do something and it, it feels a little bit tick boxy and you're just a bit like you know scratch beneath the surface how will that lead to tangible action and impact or is it just a company putting out a tweet about how much they value um, value women, like how much of it is authentic. So I think there's an element there. Um, and then just the point around sort of the slip of the tongue of the year thing, you know, should it be that we have 364 days in between each of those moments where people are thinking about these issues and challenges like it shouldn't be? So that was a really long um, rambling answer to quite a simple question. Apologies. Um. <laughs> you don't have to apologise because that's what it's all about as well with our podcast. It's not about us. It's about yourself and all the other guests the more you talk I'm very good at talking about myself so um yeah we're gonna get on okay here (laughs) honestly it's brilliant because that's what it's meant to be about like this is your opportunity and I guess an opportunity for our listeners to hear about you because obviously your profile within the women's game is huge and you've done so much for it that's very kind Hannah I think um it's, it's an interesting one isn't it about sort of my profile within the game I think it's something actually that I took a, took stock off probably um, last year. So around the, the pandemic and everything that happened over the last 12 months and sort of my role with the 100 and the bitter disappointment that we didn't get to launch that last year, it meant that I did have a bit of time on my hands um, last summer, which was unexpected. And I think it gave me a chance to really step back and be a bit 
more proactive with some of that stuff. Like I realize now that I have got a platform and I have got a voice. And I think historically, if you look at some of the roles that I've done over the years, and um, so I've worked in cricket for a while now, but um, initially joining the ECB as media manager for the women's team, like it was all about using the players as the spokespeople. And, and absolutely, you know, they're brilliant ambassadors for the game and, and sort of, yeah, um, they're doing brilliant things. But almost from a personal perspective, I felt like I could and should be doing more. And I think in a way that links back to the whole International Women's Day thing, isn't it? It's how do we use our voice to challenge? How do we use our platform to challenge? Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things about sort of as a personal profile, I think I'm increasingly aware of it um, and aware of the fact that I'm in a privileged position where I can help to um, impact and make make change happen. But we need to we need to communicate that properly and better. And if I can do that through the odd tweet, so I've got quite into Twitter over the last year, you might have noticed I've become a bit of a prolific tweeter, um, which is definitely uh, prolific news in a very loose way there, because I think I probably put out one or two tweets a week, which uh, isn't exactly prolific, but it's a lot more than I was doing. Um, Let's just say that. So I think, yeah, I've realised that I do have a role to play. Um, in that space and I have a role to play in, in you know sharing some of our ambitions and, and questioning and challenging um, what is going on uh, within the sector. Yeah definitely because I was going to come on to this a little bit later but I think I'll, I'll pop this one in and then I'll pass it over to Alex to continue with the questioning. So obviously being seen online as a woman as a leader can also sometimes not go in your favour because people have high opinions all the time and especially with the hundreds there's a lot of kind of resistance to it because it's something new. But how do you deal with the resistance to it and the negativity? Because obviously you're kind of like the face of it at the moment. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I've been working on the hundreds, uh, gosh, probably for a couple of years now, which is quite funny in, its sense, in itself since we haven't actually uh, launched the thing yet. Um, but yeah, you're right. Look, the hundred divides opinion. I think it, it it is under a lot of scrutiny. Um, there are a lot of people out there who are very vocal um, about how um, they don't believe it has a a role to play or that they're concerned about the impact it might have on the game but from my perspective so my responsibility within the hundred is um, laser focused on the women's competition and the women's game and so my ultimate um, responsibility there is making sure that we um, use the hundred to really accelerate and um, turbocharge our plans for the women and girls game and I think if you take a step back and you look at the hundred sort of holistically and okay there might be some things that people don't like about it if you look at the impact that it could potentially have on women's cricket it's enormous so we know we had our schedule announcement last week and um, we had the brilliant news um, that we were able to announce that we're opening the whole competition with a standalone women's match, which is going to be played under lights at the Kia Oval, so the second biggest cricket ground in the country, um, on Wednesday, the 21st of July, and it's going to have Oval Invincibles women against Manchester Original women, Originals women, and that historic first ball in the competition is going to be bowled by one of our brilliant female players. Like, that is game-changing. That level of exposure, with that match being live on the BBC, live on Sky Sports, and then every single one of those women's matches after that being live on Sky Sports, and the BBC also picking up um, additional matches, that level of exposure and visibility and scale is something that we have never seen before in domestic women's cricket in particular in this country. And I think actually in terms of women's sports, like if you look at what the 100 is doing, um, you know, it's all about throwing cricket stores open to more people. So a, a bigger and wider audience. And a really key part of that is how we are establishing it from the very start with a gender balance lens. So every decision we make about the 100 is through that gender balance lens. So Um, that can only be a good thing for women's cricket in terms of that scale and that thought process and what the 100 really embodies as a cricket competition. So I know, for example, that um, I'm really looking forward to taking my family to watch um, some of the matches at the 100 this summer. And I think what's really exciting about that is that, I mean, my two, they're little, so they might not really know what's going on, but um, they're three and, and one and a bit. So we'll see how that goes, could be carnage. But what's brilliant from my perspective is that they will get to watch elite women's cricket on the same platform and scale as elite men's cricket and that they can aspire one day to have a boy and a girl they can aspire to play for the same team and that they can aspire to have the same ambition and the same love of the game and that wasn't the same for me when I was growing up you know I didn't even know that there was a sort of yeah an elite pathway for for women and girls so in a very long-winded answer to your question Hannah about uh, the hundreds and sort of my role and remit within that and and how I deal with some of the scrutiny and stuff I think I'm quite lucky that I can almost take a step back from some of that because I know to the core that what the 100 is going to do for the women and girls game is massive 
and that um, I've got an incredible opportunity to help shape that direction. Um, and it's something that, yeah, I feel incredibly lucky. And I, yeah, I don't kind of how I manage that, but I feel incredibly lucky to be at the crux of that um, because it's, yeah, it's just mega exciting. And just picking up on the 100, I'm not sure if you were involved with it at the time or not, but when it was first announced, it was originally marketed as being for housewives and children. Do you think they made a bit of a mistake targeting it just those specific groups or do you think they should have targeted it more at families? A really good question, Alex. And I think, look, I think with um, the origins of um, the 100, back then it wasn't, I don't even think it was the 100 then. I think we we're still talking about it as the new the new T20 competition or the new competition. It was called for quite a long time uh, before that um, bombshell was dropped so that it was going to be a, a new format with 100 balls. But look, I think in terms of um, the audience that we're going after for the 100, um, it is all about, yeah, throwing cricket stores open to, to more people. And I think something that we've realised is that we have a massive opportunity around families and young people and you mentioned it there I think um you know it's not all about sort of yeah women and children it is about that family experience um and it is it is about trying to get more young people into the game so we know that we have a challenge as a game that our predominant audience not the whole audience but predominantly it is a white male um, dominated audience so what can we do to try and expand that because ultimately all the hundred is trying to do is to bring more people in and to grow our game and I think yeah families and young people is a, is a real key target audience for that and I think if you look at the way that we're trying to position the hundred so yes it is going to be a world-class cricket competition first and foremost it's going to feature some of the best players from around the world and um, so we saw last week with the the men's player draft event and that we announced eight um, Australian women's players um, are also going to be involved across those eight teams. So it's going to involve world-class cricket, but it's also going to fuse that with brilliant blockbuster entertainment, which sounds um, a bit marketing, uh, a bit marketing-esque and like a bit vague. What does that actually mean? But it, it means that we're trying to reimagine what the, the sort of the match day experience looks like. How can we make it more um, relevant and accessible to families? So I've mentioned about, I'm excited about taking my family. So that means that with my three-year-old and my one-year-old, we need to keep them in entertained all the time and it needs to be fast it needs to be exciting it needs to be colorful it needs to be vibrant it needs to be bold and I think they're just some of the things that with the 100 and with the new format and this new opportunity with these eight new teams men's and women's players same team same platform we have an opportunity to look at things differently um so I think yeah that's that's can only be very exciting and do you think by having these high profile players in both the men and the women's game it's going to elevate the 100 to a new status and perhaps make it a format that more people might want to take up? Uh, hopefully, I think, um, I mean, yeah, in terms of the, the calibre of the players who are going to be involved, you know, we've got the big ones, definitely from the, the women's game perspective, sort of being able to announce Meg Lanning, Beth Mooney and Jess Jonathan all playing at Welsh Fire last week. You're kind of like, crikey, that's, that's decent. Um, so I think, yeah, in terms of whether the format will be picked up and played elsewhere, hopefully, I mean, I think one of the key purposes around the 100 and the format itself is it, it does make it simple so I know for example that cricket like I love it I've grown up playing I started playing when I was 10 years old I know I know the nuances I love I love the randomness of things that happen and you know there's really weird laws that are difficult to explain and like I'm in the club so I kind of get it and I like that but I know that it's a real challenge actually in terms of them being able to engage with somebody who's never watched a cricket match before. And I think there's a real perception challenge around what cricket is and, and sort of, yeah, who it's for. And I think just going back to the, the theme for International Women's Day and that choose to challenge, I think the big thing that really struck me straight away in terms of my personal sort of interpretation of that was we should be choosing to challenge perceptions, like choose to challenge the perception of what cricket is and who it's for. And I think the 100 really helps us to address a lot of that because it is, you know, it's 100 balls, whoever scores the most runs wins. And that makes it really simple to explain to somebody who has never seen a cricket match before what's going on. You don't have to talk about overs. You don't have to talk about fine leg. You don't have to talk about mid-off, mid-on, silly point, um, all these jargonous words that mean nothing to somebody that's never heard them before like you can strip all that complexity out just present it as a simple game between bat and ball most runs wins and I think sort of from a personal perspective the example I always use here is so my wife Eliza like she's a massive sports nut she loves it um she's a hockey player um back in the day not so much anymore having had two kids but um she's she's got into cricket because of me like I've taken her to matches you know we'll listen to test match special on the radio when we're driving in the car and um, we'll watch on Sky Sports like 
she actually consumes a lot of cricket now, but she will still ask me the question, especially when she's just listening to the commentary and they're talking about, oh, um, she's just uh, she's just chopped one down to third man. She'd be like, what does that mean? What are they even talking about? So I think one of the key things to 100 is almost just trying to strip back some of that complexity, um, just deliver it in a really easy, accessible way. And I think one of the brilliant things that we're doing actually around the 100 is how do we integrate our broadcast partners into helping us with some of those things? So how do we use graphics? How do we use digital innovation? So there's like loads of really cool digital things that are going on. And going back to a previous question about like, what could the impact be around um, sort of the women's game in particular? Like you just look at some of the digital stuff that we're planning and you're just like, I mean, it's just mind blowing how cool it is. Um, And in terms of, yeah, trying to inspire young girls to want to get into the game and things like that's the space we need to be in. So um, I've actually forgotten what the original question was here now, but um, there's there's lots, there's lots of layers to the hundreds. Oh, we're talking about complexity and things. I mean, like, I think it could be a game that is adopted at the grassroots as well. So in terms of that entry level um, option, um, and not just for women, not just for girls, but for, for men and boys as well, that entry level option, just down your local club or, you know, in your local playground or whatever, anything that makes it easy to play um and to set up I think can only be a good thing I definitely agree and honestly my like research nerd is coming out here every time you mention kind of perceptions and visibility (laughs) my PhD is obviously it's frames about the T20 World Cup last year what I found there is obviously really exciting but what's going to happen in the summer I think is going to be just that next level even more and I think that's my biggest frustration with academia is I'm focusing on a specific time period so my findings are going to be about that time period and it's not going to be about date Hannah You're yeah something that's already yesterday's literally <laughs> and it's going to be so kind of like irrelevant not irrelevant because obviously it'll be really important <laughs> but it's just not going to be able to acknowledge this new exciting time where the work has kind of moved on because I think we saw back along with an international survey that was conducted about professionalism in the game and that was already two years out of date and mm. it's so slow research but anyway that's my little rant over. No but I think just to that though I think it's so important and this isn't me sort of blowing smoke or whatever the phrase is I'm not sure what words I can use on this podcast yeah. but um, without <laughs> without trying to sort of big you up here I think it is so important that these issues and challenges are being properly researched now. I think there's a massive gap actually in some of these things that they've just not really been looked at or talked about and you know maybe there's an element that historically people didn't really care um people weren't that bothered you know so what like if if it's yeah if we're not getting enough women and girls into the game or into sport so what who really cares people care now like we really care and I think from my perspective you know I look back at my um my academic days a long time ago now uh, so I did a geography degree um and I'm really frustrated at myself because geography is one of those subjects where you can take it anywhere and like I had an opportunity to do a dissertation and I could have done it on pretty much anything because that's how geography is cute all the jokes about coloring in and all of those things but I did a degree, uh, sorry, I did a dissertation on um, the spatial and temporal distribution of dust across Oxford city centre, which I remember nothing about now. It was completely pointless. I did it as a means to an end because ultimately I remember why I did it. I wanted to play cricket all summer. So I wanted something that I knew that I could just do. I could be in Oxford all summer playing cricket. Um, I could just really concentrate on that. So I just did it. Whereas I would love now almost to be back in a position where I could do some sort of really brilliant research on women's sport. So I'm really envious actually of the opportunity that you have ahead of you that you can look into some of these issues because yeah, write it Hannah and I will read it and I will, I'll lap it up. I can't wait. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, honestly, we can collab in the future, you know, get some <laughs> research on the go. No, but that's what I'm most passionate about is I've realised there really isn't much on cricket. Obviously, the history of cricket, you've got Raf Nicholson, who is excelling in that kind of space. But from a media marketing perspective, in an English context, yeah. the last study I found, and I apologise if somebody is doing loads of stuff, um, was 2009. So yeah, lots then. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So hopefully my findings will add some value, but we'll see. I think um, 09, just going back to 09, that, I think that was a real shifting year actually for the women's game, wasn't it? Because was that when we won the 50 over in the T20 Women's World Cups? And the Ashes. And the Ashes. Gosh, I can't believe I forgot that one. But I think in terms of the, the T20 World Cup in particular, I remember the match at the Oval where um, England women were playing against Australia. Um, and I think it was um, a, a partnership, wasn't it, between Claire Taylor and Beth Morgan, maybe, to get us over the line in that game. And I think when we talk about perceptions and shifting perceptions, I remember reading quite a lot of the time, and obviously I watched it as well, of, you know, journalists, predominantly male journalists, 
waking up to the fact that women were actually quite good at this game. And actually, if you invest in them and you give them a stage and you give them a platform, it's actually quite a good spectacle. And oh, it's and it's almost that element of surprise that like, oh, this is actually quite this is very watchable. And I think, you know, you look at what's happened since then and how the game has kicked on even further. And hopefully that's just what the 100 will help us to do this summer is just really showcase how far um, the game has come again. Um, and, you know, it's it's just, yeah, another, another um, I guess, another sort of step in the history and the evolution of women's cricket and cricket. Um, and I think what the 100 really does, and I've talked a bit about this with colleagues recently, I think it, it really accelerates our ability to close the gap. So there is still a gap. We know there's still a gap. There's definitely still a gap between various elements of the men's and the women's game. But I think what the 100 does is it helps us to accelerate um, the closing of that gap, um, which is really important. 100%. And we will come on to that a little bit later as well. Um, Just mentioning back at the 2009 World Cup, because that was the first time where I didn't realise at the time it was the World Cup. So I think I was about 14, 15 and I was down at County Ground in Taunton watching these like women's matches and it's the first time that I'd actually seen like England women and I found a very dodgy Facebook album the other day where I was taking lots of photos thinking I must have been like an amazing sports photographer and half of them are blurred and it's so off and everything but I guess that's where my media passion did stem from um okay. <laughs> but I just wanted to take it back to that point because 2009 was obviously like you mentioned a turning point and prior to that 1993 and 1973 and all of the kind of years in between so what other kind of turning points do you think there have been if you can like nail it when was the first time that you personally as well saw women playing cricket gosh that's an excellent question uh so from a personal perspective um when did I really realize the women's game existed well I know so I started playing cricket probably when I was um around eight or nine down at my local club so I was very fortunate uh, my local primary school um has a very good relationship with uh, the local cricket club um I was a bit of a tomboy so I was playing football in the playground in the winters and they all went off to play cricket in the summer so kind of yeah followed them down to the club and got got amongst it there um but yeah classic story as I'm sure is the the case with pretty much every woman of my generation is that yeah I was the only girl in my in my in the local club changing the um, ladies toilets and all of those things and my natural assumption therefore when I was dreaming about um you know playing for England one day was that I would be captain of the England men's team because that was the only team I thought existed and um I had a bit of an obsession with Mike Atherton and I've been doing a bit of so I've moved house recently done the, the classic pandemic needed more space so we moved out to the countryside and so I've had to clear through lots of stuff and my dad's had me up in the, the loft in his house because I'm still housing quite a lot of stuff there um and found this box full of like old sort of schoolwork sketches bits and pieces and I'd done a sketch of Michael Atherton's face I was that obsessed with him like that's a bit weird isn't it so um yeah I, I genuinely um yeah thought that I'd play for the men's team and and hopefully would make my debut there so um obviously that didn't quite happen but I think in terms of the women's game I think I guess I was quite fortunate because um I was fairly handy so as part of sort of the Essex girls uh, county age group set up from when I was gosh probably sort of 12 13 or so um played through sort of the, those county age groups and Essex looked after me brilliantly so I was the first girl to be um selected onto the Essex Cricket Academy in the year that that was launched so I was in the the cohort with Sir Alistair Cook there's a bit of a name drop there but um yeah me and Kiki signing up for the Essex Cricket Academy back in gosh I don't even know what year that would have been probably around 2001 two or something like that but I was exposed, I suppose, through that pathway to the Essex women's team. And then I, I played Super Fours. So that was kind of the, the competition back in the day that was used as the, the bridging gap, I suppose, between domestic women's cricket and international women's cricket. So it meant from quite a young age, I was playing with the likes of Charlotte Edwards. So she was my, my club captain when I started playing women's club cricket down at Kenton Victor. And uh, yeah, obviously working for the ECB now, I report into Claire Connor. So um, we often have a bit of a chuckle about uh, how we used to play against each other back in the glory days. But when I was going through this box, long story, sorry, when I was going through this box, alongside my sketch of uh, Mike Atherton, I always had loads of pristinely kept posters of um, England women's um, sort of yeah bilateral series and stuff so um, and I remember now like I used to have these up on my wall in my room. So I would have a poster of Claire Connor up in my up in my room on my wall so I'm pleased to say that's not the case anymore because that would be a bit odd but um so I think I did have female role models I think I did obviously look up to the likes of Claire and, and Charlotte and others in the game but 
the profile just wasn't there. It wasn't anywhere near um, what it is today. So in terms of having that tangible ambition to play for the England women's team, that was probably quite late. That's probably sort of, yeah, 15, 16, I suppose. Um, when the penny drops, I wouldn't be playing for the men and I'd be playing for the women. Um, but in terms of, so I'm just trying to think other game-changing moments. I mean, I think there's been lots, you two will probably be much more clued up on the kind of the, the history elements of it, but I think there's been lots fairly recently. So I think the... Um, the 2013 Women's Ashes, I think that's right. I think that was a big, a big moment. I think that's probably around the time that Sky probably started televising every one of the England women's matches live, um, which is again a, a big shift and a big commitment from them. But I mean, yeah, we're still really only just sort of scratching the surface there. I think, you know, in the most recent history of that women's T20 World Cup final uh, last March, you know, that's the biggest probably standout moment in recent times. Um, just a phenomenal achievement to to sort of deliver that that world that world cup final there and the numbers that went to watch it but yeah i'm, I'm trying to think maybe what what you two got what are your big moments come on let hit me with your top five big game-changing moments in women's cricket <laughs> i think for me is purely 2009 massively yeah. obviously if we're going back in time then obviously rachel hayo flint and getting the first ever world cup obviously on the ball but i think recent history for me it's got to be obviously which you were a part of is 2017 World Cup. What a game changer! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's yeah, you're right. I mean that absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, in this country, um, that 2017 Women's World Cup is a moment that will stand out. So I was, as you've alluded to there, Hannah, I was very fortunate to get the opportunity to work um, on that. So I was a strategic planning manager, um, which I'm still not completely sure what that job title really entailed. Um, But how I interpreted it uh, was I was essentially a bit of a consultant across lots of different areas. So I kind of, yeah, I I was able to advise on things around sort of, yeah, player logistics and um, operations, but then also event presentation, marketing, comms, etc. So it was quite a nice role, actually. I kind of got to dip into lots of different bits without having any overarching responsibilities. It was perfect. But I remember back, you know, there are several key moments within that. So just in terms of how we positioned it from the start. So we did a ballot for the final so I don't think we'd ever had a ballot for a um a major women's sport event in this country before so I think that's the first time that had happened and you know that happened back in kind of October um 2016 or something I think it happened sort of yeah pre-Christmas I'm probably going to be proven wrong with that now but I have a feeling it was it was um oh was it maybe it was maybe it was the year off but anyway it was it was a good few months out from the competition starting and I think just what that did straight away was it just signposts value and it signposts scarcity so it's like you know you need to get yourself in this ballot if you want to come and watch this amazing like amazing world cup on home soil at Lords, the home of cricket you need to get your name in the hat now so you need to apply and get into the ballot so I think that's the first thing we did um I think we did lots of other really good tactical bits and pieces around um sort of how the sick the, the ticketing on sale and um how we approach that again just bringing that level of professionalism that's never that hadn't happened really in the women's game before so really having a plan having a proper proper marketing and comms plan and so yeah that was you know it's led by a um, a former colleague, Zara Al-Qudsi, who's now a, a commercial partnerships manager at F1, passionate about women's sports, sits on the Women's Sport Trust board. Um, but she was the real driving force behind that. And I think, you know, I remember having conversations with her fairly early on where we talked about we're going to sell out the final, regardless of whether England are in it or not, we're going to sell it out. We're going to get 20, 28,000 people there because it's it's a World Cup. You know, it's not just a, a bilateral series. It's a World Cup. And if we can't sell a World Cup out, then, you know, we're, we're doing something wrong. So we were bold and ambitious with it. Um, I remember going into some meetings and quite frankly, um, with some stakeholders, they dismissed it, shrug of shoulders, being like, okay, that's that's all right. Nice, nice ambition, girls. But, you know, let's maybe just see how we go. Let's see how ticket sales go before we commit to opening the whole ground. Let's, you know, let's try not bite off too much here. Let's um, let's start small. And, you know, I'm really pleased that we we were bold and we were ambitious and we pushed through with that. And obviously the, the results show for themselves. But I think what people don't realise about that World Cup, actually, I think people think that we sold it out because England got there and that the only reason we sold it out was because it was an England team playing in a home World Cup on home soil. That's not the case. We'd actually sold it out before the semi-finals, and I don't think people realise that. So we'd actually, you know, we'd, we'd sold that World Cup out before England qualified for the final. Um, so that was, uh, you know, an enormous thing in itself. 
And then the day itself, I mean, gosh, I've never experienced anything like it. So I've worked at Lords um, for about 10 years now in various roles. Um, initially um, used to work for the MCC in their media and comms team. So very used to being around the ground on a major match day. Um, I used to manage the media centre. Um, so yeah, very used to kind of seeing full houses, watching men's cricket um, at Lords and sort of the buzz and the feel around it. But that day in 2017, it just had a completely different feel to it. It was a different noise. Everything about it was different. And I just remember even just on the morning, like the queues snaking all the way back to St. John's with Tube Station, like just unbelievable. And there were ticket touts outside the ground. There were ticket touts, you know, and that's never happened before. Um, well, at least as far as I'm aware, around a major women's sport event in this country. So I think that the whole day was magical. Um, it was, yeah, something that will live long with me forever. It's It gave me a lot of belief, actually, that we were going in the right direction. And I think um, just going back to the point about how it had a different feel to it, like there's an amazing stat that more cups of coffee were sold that day than pints of beer. And I think that's a really interesting thing, actually, because I think that just demonstrates that actually whilst, you know, we have the same level of ambition around the women's game as the men's game and we want it to be as big and scale and all of those things it is still different and that's okay and it does appeal maybe to a slightly different audience and I think that's okay and I think that's actually where it's really interesting with the hundreds so coming back to that you'll notice that I do this a lot by the way just keep bringing everything back to the hundred but coming back to the hundreds and sort of the purpose that the women's competition serves within that overarching ambition for the hundred which is all about throwing cricket stores open to more people the women's competition is really vital within that because I think it just signposts that cricket is a game for everyone and I think it really will help us to hopefully um, engage with this more diverse audience and will attract um, more families and young people um, to the game because that's exactly what happened um, on that that um, Women's World Cup final um, day back in 2017. And you are obviously a proud mother to two beautiful little kids. Um, how challenging has it been to be a working mother and the head of the hundred? Uh, that's very kind of you to say two beautiful children. I mean, I, I think they're beautiful, um, but uh, <laughs> they're kids. They can be a little bit, um, yeah, messy and mucky a lot of the time as well. Um, it's been interesting, actually. And, and I think this is where, like with the, the last year and with the pandemic and everything that that's um, resulted in, in terms of working from home, I think I'm coming up to my year anniversary, actually, of working from home, um, which... Uh, it's, it's had its challenges in terms of space and being able to really segregate sort of that work-life balance. But I think the real silver lining of it actually is the amount of time I've been able to have spending with, yeah, Eliza, my wife and, and my kids, so Eden and Ben. And, you know, just the fact that every morning I get to wake them up in the morning and um, get them dressed and, and everything. And then every evening, like it's, yeah, story time and, and having that time with them, like it's really precious. And I kind of reflect and I'm like, if this if this year hadn't happened with the pandemic, would I have had that time with them? I, I wouldn't have. Like, and you know, I think I think things would be a lot, a lot more hectic and um, possibly a lot more difficult. And I think just over the last year, it's almost given um, me personally a chance to sort of yeah, really reflect on that and really reassess what's important. And hopefully, gosh, hopefully when things do go back to whatever the new normal um, ends up looking like, and you know, I'm having to get back into the office. I mentioned I moved house, so I now have a long commute that I can still maintain that balance and that I can still um, make sure that I'm yeah around for Eden and Ben as much as I want to be so yeah I think it's there's a few things there and I think the other thing though that it, it has done definitely for me is it's given me a really good perspective on things a really good kind of leveler about what's really important and yeah it's made me realize that yeah you can have a difficult day at work where things happen you know like I remember sort of the day that we decided last year that the 100 wasn't going to be able to go ahead definitely the right decision but that was heartbreaking and sort of being able to process that by just going and having a cuddle with Eden and she's like it's okay mama it'll be fine mama you know it's, it's it really just makes it um it makes it okay she's right it will be okay everything will be what it is so um I think it's given me that perspective and then just from a professional capacity like it's given me probably a renewed drive and a renewed energy about what I'm trying to achieve so from my perspective you know we all have visions and mission statements and ambitions and objectives and all of those things but my personal I guess vision for what cricket is and what I'm trying to do especially with my role on the 100 is that I want cricket to be equally relevant accessible um, to Eden and Ben so it's not just a sport that is you know primarily for Ben and that Eden can play if she wants to but her pathway is a little bit more complicated and there are a few more barriers that she has to get through and oh by the way Eden you're probably going to be the only girl at this session like I want them to have an equal 
um, accessible and, and relevant experience. So I think it's, it's yeah, selfishly, like they've done me a bit of a favour there because I think it's really helped me to kind of, yeah, really align um, my personal and professional um, sort of, yeah, values there. Earlier, you mentioned that you grew up playing cricket and that Michael Atherton was someone that you admired. Did you have any other role models or was it just Michael Atherton? <laughs> Uh, no, no, I did. I did. I don't want this to come out as some sort of yeah weird Michael Atherton stalker or something. Um, no, I also uh, I watched a lot of tennis. So because that was on um, yeah free to air television. So I, I'd watch a lot of Wimbledon in particular. When I say tennis, I just think Wimbledon. So I know that uh, I used to have posters of Steffi Graf. Um, so she was the one that I really uh, admired. I think I quite liked. She used to wear like a headband, like a bandana. Like I quite liked that look. Um, so yeah, there was. Um, I guess she was one. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I don't think I ever went through the, I don't know, sort of real kind of, yeah, that noticing or thinking I've got role models. I think it was almost, yeah, just got on with it and played it really. And maybe actually it's that I had very, very local role models that I looked up to and that, yeah, I wanted to be like, so I also played a lot of hockey growing up and probably actually hockey was probably my main sport for a yeah initially that was the one that I played so it's actually probably the England women's hockey team so sort of James Sixsmith um James Smith um and sort of yeah those players that I I probably uh wanted to emulate more um and maybe that was because they were more visible maybe that is it maybe it's because hockey is much more naturally a gender balanced sport you know hockey is kind of if anything it's it's probably um especially with off the back of the Rio Olympics you know it's probably a sport that people um akin to women more than they do to men albeit it is it does have that gender balance at its heart so yeah maybe maybe that's it maybe sort of predominantly uh, role models through sort of yeah the hockey space rather than the cricket space just because yeah they were more visible at the time and then just linking um, back to leadership as well. So obviously women historically have kind of been excluded from boards and the whole idea of sport as a male domain needs to kind of be challenged now as well, because obviously there is a place at the table for women. So how did you get into your leadership positions and have you had to overcome any kind of barriers or challenges? Um, yeah, great question. Do you know, it's a really interesting one because I think I perhaps have been fortunate that I've not noticed that I've had hurdles to overcome. Um, I think I've been I've been quite lucky, I suppose, with my career that I've had good opportunities have kind of arisen at the right time for me. I wonder whether, though, there is an element that I was so used to as a child growing up in, you know, playing cricket and being part of that predominantly male space, you know, only girl at my local club join the Essex Cricket Academy, selected onto that. Like I would be the only girl on that Essex Cricket Academy with, you know, the likes of Alistair Cook, Ravi Papara, Tom Wesley, like they were my cohort. So I'm just, I'm mixing with them all the time. So like, I don't know, maybe I just got kind of used to the fact that that was just as it was. And then um, I was very fortunate that I, uh, I got into Oxford. So I went to Oxford and did my undergrad there. And um, I was, I think I always felt very empowered. I think I've always been very fortunate that through sort of, yeah, through sort of opportunities, whether in sport or academic stuff, I've always had people who have really empowered me to, to sort of get on with things. So my tutors at university, so I had two primarily, Lorraine Wilde and Heather Biles, um, and they were very supportive. And, you know, I, I never saw anything as, as sort of a barrier or, or a challenge. So it's kind of, I think I've been quite lucky in that respect. I do appreciate that's not the same for everyone. And then I think just in terms of sort of professional career wise, like, you know, it's, I say I've been lucky, but I've worked incredibly hard as well. Like I've kind of, I've made sure that I've been in the right places at the right times. So well, my first job, my first job out of uni, so I was the Sports Federation president for Oxford for a year, which was brilliant. Because uh, that basically meant that I got to, um, yeah, stay on at Oxford for a year, um, organise a bit of sport. There's a bit more to it than that. But essentially live a bit like a student, but I was being paid and I didn't have any exams. So that was amazing. Um, but then after that, I, I joined Rounders England as a um, regional development officer for Rounders England which was a bit of a rogue move and I think I remember my parents being like are you sure are you sure that's what you want to do like all your friends are you know off becoming investment bankers and consultants and doctors and things and, and you're you're going to be running rounders like what's that all about but I think I could always see it as a stepping stone I was like no I, I want to work in sport I need to get into the sector I don't know how the sector works I need to learn and I think I was given quite a lot of responsibility fairly early on with that because it was a small organization so I was able to have like quite a, a good impact there and I was able to be exposed to environments where I was presenting to Sport England or sort of yeah getting involved at a fairly high level there 
And then, yeah, moving into cricket, like working for MCC for three years, um, it is possibly the most male dominated um, organisation and environment in the world. It is changing. There is a big shift happening there. I think the appointment of Claire Connor, obviously, as president um, next year there just shows how intent they are on changing that persona and that perception. So back to perception about what the club is all about. So things are changing there. But I think working at MCC, again, like just... I almost felt a little bit being the only woman in the room. I saw it as an advantage. I saw it as having a point of difference. I saw it as having a platform to be able to to sort of yeah, bring a different opinion. But I do appreciate that it was also quite difficult. And it did mean you had to be quite outspoken. And, you know, that has to change. That absolutely has to change. Like we need diversity of thought. We need greater representation. Like I think I mentioned it at the start. Like we've come such a long way as a sport and as a game that there are still some big challenges. And I think governance um, and making sure that we have, you know, that we have informed women in the room making decisions about women's cricket is really important. Um, so I think I've, yeah, since working at ECB, I've always been, I've been very fortunate to have a very close working relationship with Claire Connor, um, who has been the real driving force um, behind pretty much every major um, thing that's happened in, in women's cricket in this in this country, definitely over the last sort of 10, 10 years or so. So yeah, I think it's, um, I think things are changing. I think things need to change more quickly, ideally. I think it is, yeah, governance is, is crucial. Uh, we need the right people in the room, making those decisions and yeah we need that diversity of thought completely agree and we've got obviously the announcement of charlotte edwards as the piece of course lottie (laughs) and and that's it and i think i i saw a tweet about that actually you know lottie was that first wave of professional female players in 2014 and that's not that long ago right like i that was when i was working at ecb so i was media manager for the women's team there and i remember writing that press release to announce this first wave of professional um, england women's contracts and lottie was one of the recipients within that so to see her now being elected as president of the Professional Cricketers Association, there's something really nice about that to demonstrate how far the women's game has come just in that six or seven years. Um, and I think having Lottie in that role, I think, again, it just it just shows that as a game, we're, we are trying to open up properly. We are trying to address the imbalances that are still there. Like I said, there's still lots to do, but I think having the right people um, helping to guide those those uh, this time and, and those decisions is crucial. So um, yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled. Lottie and uh, Lottie and Claire sort of yeah, at top of the tree, which is great. And then in Scotland as well, we've got um, Sue Strachan, who's the first ever female president there. So all of these firsts are happening, maybe perhaps later than we wanted them to, but they are happening. So yeah. the future is definitely going in the right direction. We hope. And as a leader yourself, so one thing I've just like noted down here is how accessible you are and how open you are like this conversation has been so quite relaxed quite chilled and it's so nice to see you talking so openly about your leadership role and I think we've noticed that with quite a few of the women that we've interviewed is perhaps we get a kind of perception of like oh my god they're incredible women they're so far away from who we are and kind of like untouchable kind of if that makes sense but you know what I mean I guess for especially younger girls and stuff as well who are like oh I'd love to work in cricket one day how important do you think it is to actually be accessible to do like podcasts like these and to have your profile on Twitter so open? Hugely. I think, you know, everybody talks about you can't be what you can't see. I think there's also an element of, yeah, you can't be what you can't relate to. So I think it is about being relatable. Um, and I think it is about being a human. I think ultimately, you know, we're all in this together. Um, and I think the more open um, we can be about talking about challenges or ambitions or um yeah personal stories etc just the more real things things are so I mean yeah hopefully hopefully that that does come across because I I would be more than happy to talk to anybody um about my role and about my journey and god it sounds like some sort of x-factor backstory um which it isn't at all but like I think that accessibility point is is really important and I think that like I said I think with and I know it's a bit tongue-in-cheek but with how I'm trying to use Twitter more um these days to communicate um I think that's really important because I think ultimately you know there will be frustrations about what's going on um in the game and there will be things that people disagree with and there will be decisions that are made that people don't understand but unless we take the time to explain some of those things and to explain where we are, then how can we expect um, people just to accept them? So I think it's it is about being accessible. Um, I think I sometimes get a, a sort of yeah rap on the knuckles from our comms team about being too open. But look, I would much rather have an honest conversation because otherwise I'm going to forget what I can and can't say. 
so um yeah it's best just to be just to be honest about everything really and just bringing it back to the hundred it's great that it was announced that the prize money is equal but wages between men and women still aren't what more do you think needs to be done to ensure that equality is reached yeah, I'm really pleased you asked that question, actually, because I've kind of alluded to it a few times in this conversation about how there are still big gaping gaps. And that pay disparity um, is one of them, right? That is probably the single biggest thing that we can point at where there is a, a big difference between what the men's players are being paid in the 100 and what the women's players are being paid. So I think it's around 15%. Um, the women will earn around 15% what the men earn. And I think we've always been very open about that. We've not tried to hide it. We've not tried to pretend um, that it's closer than it is. But I think with regards to sort of prize money and pay I think they're two slight they're two very different things actually I think prize money is a real um it's very totemic it is a real signal around how much you value something so I think by having equal prize money for the men's and the women's competitions that was really important and that was a very um a key decision that we made that was actually a very simple decision in the end because it was all about what does the hundred stand for and the hundred stands for trying to put gender balance at its core so we need to make sure that we are valuing the the winners of the, the the men's competition exactly the same as the winners of the women's competition so that was a very easy decision now pay is a bit more complicated and I think with regards to pay I think we do have to just take a step back and just again look at the journey that the women's game is on so I've already mentioned there that I remember writing that press release for the first wave of professional female cricketers in 2014 um, with the England women's team and if you look at all the brilliant things that have happened since then um, over the last six years or so um, we're on this accelerated journey but there is still a way to go so I think it's kind of how can we over the next five or six years accelerate the closing of that gap and I think the hundred is part of the solution not the problem to this so if you look at why that gap exists there's lots of things around it but one of the key things I think is around um, how we market women's cricket so we need the women's game to flip from being and this is a bit of a jargonous sort of way of talking about it but from being a cost center so from costing the game money which it does at the moment like playing international women's cricket and playing domestic women's cricket it costs the game money and we don't have that return on investment yet so how do we flip it from being a cost center to a revenue generator so that it does start making money so it becomes commercially sustainable and then we can start looking at that equal pay debate with a lot more vigor and I think there are several sort of things around that so like revenue it's all about broadcast um, income um, ticket sales and commercial partners and I think what the hundred does is by co-presenting the men's and the women's game it helps to reposition some of those things and I think just in terms of that marketing element in particular like the level of investment going into marketing this year around the hundred is bigger than anything we've ever seen before in women's cricket so being able to really give that visibility and that scale and that showcase moment so on the 21st of July when we have that standalone opening women's match which you know we're, we've got high ambitions for how many tickets we want to sell to that game um, obviously it depends on government COVID regulations but you know we want to get big attendance we want to get big audience figures on on TV and stuff and then all of a sudden you know you've got a product there that people want to invest in so then it's like, yeah, how do we keep evolving? Um, how do we keep building? Um, we know that we have a challenge there. Um, we're very open to that. We're not trying to shy away from it. But it's like, where can we be in five years time so that that gap has had, you know, that it has closed um, as much as possible? So I think it's, it's yeah, it's one of those, like, I think about it all the time. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those things, you know, one of the big sort of questions that I'm thinking about a lot is, yeah, the commerciality of the women's game and how we make that shift and that step change. And I think that's the next big thing that we need to we need to address, really. And hopefully, like I said, the hundred will be part of the solution to that. And what you've just said is really hit the nail on the head. Do you think that's part of the reason why the women's game doesn't get as much respect as the men's? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's probably a few things that play there. I think, I think maybe people dismiss it without having actually seen it. I think there's maybe just a bit of a kind of, oh, it's just, yeah, women's sport is just not as good as men's sport without actually having watched it. So hopefully through, you know, through the broadcast deal that we've got this year with the 100 and through playing all of those matches alongside the men's matches, that visibility will really help to educate how good the women's game is now I think you know we saw it back in 2009 if you put something in front of people and they'll watch it they'll be like wow that's actually really good so the more of that we can do the better and look I think you know we're always going to have a challenge around people making a direct comparison between the men's game and the women's game which I actually think is a bit lazy you know like we know that they are different we know that 
biologically women we're not strong we're not going to be able to bowl as quick as the men we're not going to be able to hit the ball as far as the men although I say that if you see some of the sixes that are being hit now I think that would help to change perceptions so in terms of that you know going back to choose the challenge and perceptions that's a massive shift we need to make actually so how can we change the perception um, around women's cricket and I think hopefully um, through the hundreds and through the England women's internationals this summer and that increased scale and visibility we will start shifting some of those perceptions about um about the women's game and about women's cricket and and women's sport more generally and I think that is a perfect place to kind of round up now as well and like Alex said you hit the nail on the head and what I like to say is it's different to not lesser than yes yeah I think people just miss that mark massively they don't engage with it they just comment on social media saying this is village get back to the kitchen oh my god this is boring so for the 2017 world cup my dissertation was looking at online misogyny and the comments that were made to the news coverage on the coverage of the final and all of the comments are horrendous so it's like even when england win the world cup they still get lazy misogynistic kind of comments but that's a minority I think more and more people are calling that out, right? And I think that's yeah. it. And I think this whole choose to challenge theme that we're all going to celebrate for International Women's Day, it's a real opportunity actually for individuals. And that's why I quite like it as a theme. I think it's very action orientated and it means that as individuals, we can choose to challenge some of those behaviours and choose to challenge some of those comments. Because you're right, I like what you said there about, what is it? It's not less than, it's, yeah. it's different. It's, or, yeah, it's not lesser than, it's yeah. different too. Yeah, see, I love that. That's it, exactly. It's, it's by no means, a lesser than um, product it's just different and that's fine like it can be just as good as so yeah that's a really good way of putting it so Beth where can our listeners find you on social media to find out more about you and about the hundred and how many days and what's going on and all that wonderful stuff so two key channels for you so um, my personal twitter is at bethwild7 um, and i am becoming yeah increasingly interactive with that so lots of good news there and then um with regards to the hundred it's at the hundred so nice and simple don't follow at oppose the hundred that's not a good one yeah, hashtag oppose the hundred and yeah, no, 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 no. honestly a huge thank you because we appreciate it's time out of your day as well and you've got to get back that's to getting the hundred <laughs> Yeah, I've got to actually do something now. No, no, it's good practice for me, actually. I need to do more things like this. So, um, no, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Honestly, it's an absolute privilege. And I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. Massive thank you to Beth for coming on and being our sixth guest for International Women's Week. It's really interesting to see how the 100 was formed and how it's progressing and how it's only going to have a positive impact on cricket and not a negative one. Coming up tomorrow on our seventh and final podcast for International Women's Week, we've got the Scotland president, Sue Streckham. Now, Sue talks all about her journey from being a doctor to getting to the presidency. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat and on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. And if you wanted to give our personal Twitters a follow, Hannah is at Hannity1194 and I'm at Alex Jane Pereira. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time. Hold up. 